you know, in the 60s, having a party was code for cocaine. (laughs) Same as now. And welcome everyone to another week of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where lifelong friends, musicians, and people who just complain about the smallest things in life get together to talk about albums from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Listen to some songs, give our general impressions, do some deep dives, and at the end, vote and tell you whether or not this is really an album you must hear before your lifeline is clipped by the fates. This week, very excited we have been listening to an album by an artist that I have always revered. It is Sam Cooke and his album Live at the Harlem Square Club. Very shortly, we will give you our tweet-length impressions of this album. But first, to give you a little bit of a taste of what we have been listening to this week, we will listen to the first track of... Actually, no, that's not even the first track. I'm sorry. We're going to skip the intro little vamp thing, and we're going to jump into... Soul twist introduction. Yeah, that's like the band warming up. We're going to get into the actual first song on the album. Feel it. Parentheses. Don't fight it. everyone so that is what we have been listening to this week very excited to dive into it and we are going to do our introduction to our cast of characters by way of a tweet length review i will be throwing it first to adam hey everybody this is adam so my quick tweet length review is that i once played a gig in atlantic city new jersey granted it was a cover gig but it consisted of four one-hour sets Sam Cooke and his band managed to pack more energy and feeling into a single 36-minute set than we did over the course of 240 minutes. One caveat, however, my band was tighter and we had fewer mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, getting snippy already. I love it. All right, Rob, let's hear it. Hey, everybody. This is Rob. My tweet-length review is absolutely classic American songs sung by one of the all-time great singers with a live feel that adds energy and context to the material. In the immortal words of Russell Crowe, are you not entertained? (laughs) (laughs) Maximus! Yes. (laughs) All right, and this is Tom, everybody. I will be leading us on this journey through this incredibly frenetic and fantastic album. My tweet-length review is that I read an essay once, a while back, about how racism hurts white people too. And this is a prime example of that. This album was recorded in 1963 and did not see the light of day until 1985 because it was considered too raw, 
too raucous, and it was never said, but it does not take a genius to read between the lines. It was too black. And honestly, that is a crime against art. So let's jump in a little bit. We're going to talk about background on this album. We're going to talk about background on this artist. This is the 1963 recorded album by one Sam Cooke, born Samuel Alphabet Hezekiah Cook. Did you say Alphabet? I'm kidding. His name is actually just Sam oh. Cook. Samuel <laughs> Cook. That's his name. <laughs> but, but born Samuel Cook without the E, C-O-O-K. He added oh. that E later in life to show that he was changing everything up. It was a rebirth for Sam. Hell yeah. Classic nom de guerre. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, wait, who are you now? <laughs> I never would be able to figure out who this new person is. <laughs> it's, like it's pronounced the exact same way. Yeah. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, it's like yeah. when Homer puts on the mustache and calls exactly. himself a guy incognito. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Jojo Shabadoo. <laughs> Come back, Jimmy Jojo. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. So, Sam Cooke. If you are not familiar with Sam Cooke, First of all, congratulations. You're about to go on one of the most satisfying musical experiences of your life. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of Sam Cooke. Born in Clarksdale, Mississippi, January 22nd of 1931. His family moved to Chicago when he was very young. He grew up in Chicago, basically, but he has that sort of hard scrabble 1930s Mississippi black man passed. His dad was a part-time preacher and so led to him getting his start like a lot of the black artists of the day did, singing gospel music. Sam Cooke's got a little bit of uh, of Michael Jackson in him. In that, he was the singer in a group at the age of six with his siblings called the Jeez. Singing Children. Creative. Yeah, I was gonna... Exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can so wait, what is it that you guys do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just hold on. Let's pause on that for a second. You you can name the group anything. No band names have been taken at this point. In it's nineteen thirty eight, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's you're just like, like, you're just like I don't have time for this shit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, singing children. Yeah, sure. Whatever. We're done. Okay. Listen, people had to work to make a living back then. They didn't have a lot of time to think about these things. To think about names. Yes, yeah, that's right. Naming is a privilege. Champagne privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they were named the Singing Children. He did that for a while. Later, in his early teen years, became the lead singer of a group called the Highway QCs, where they went entirely to other way and it had this band name that is just completely nonsensical. The Highway yeah, what QCs. What the hell does that mean? You could have named yourself anything. As Again, I, I see a trend. <laughs> yeah. But this is all in the like the church gospel scene. They're singing gospel music. It's a, you know, a way to really cut your teeth as a young black artist. The honestly, the amount of continuous exposure that you were getting to raucous musical performances if you were going to like I read a, a biography of Sam Cooke and they literally were saying that like church services would start at six o'clock in the morning and go to like four o'clock in the afternoon it was an all-day affair and it was just that's when church is awesome <laughs> well not, it's not the experience we had no, no we had the there were no hammond organs no. there were no drummers in our church right. no definitely no drummers and so one yeah, like thing said, missing from the catholic tradition it's the hammond organ yeah <laughs> <laughs> that'll solve all the problems yes <laughs> Hammond organ accompanied on vocals by a 43-year-old dad. 
Is there uh, anything else we should change about this? No, just nah, stick with nah, the organ. We're good. We're good. We're good. So, yeah, but like we're talking about like an immersive musical education that he was getting from a very early age. And you have, and I feel like in the Catholic Church, it was very much a, we have a lady here and she's going to sing. And then you sort of just sing back what she sings in this weird monotone. This is an interactive musical experience. Everybody's singing, everybody's clapping, dancing, shaking tambourines. It is a an immersion that I think you can tell in Sam's later work gave him an understanding of music, an understanding of crowds, and an understanding of control that is pretty phenomenal and I think shows up very well on this live album. During his time with the Highway QCs, by the way, is when he develops his lifelong friendship with one Lou Rawls, who ah, is not on this yes. album to its detriment because Lou Rawls is the man. So far, his his life is very similar to, or at least the trajectory is very similar to one Aretha Franklin. Mm. Again, came from the South yes. up to the you know, uh, a Detroit area, started uh, singing church songs, and then made that jump, right? Yeah. Well, that is that there was a huge migration. We're talking like he was born in 1931. His family moved in 1933. That's the fucking Great Depression. That is the Jeez, migration yeah. of black farmers, basically, from the Delta areas to the northern industrial areas for work, basically. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't make a living. So they moved to Chicago. They moved to Detroit to try to get some work. And they brought a lot of those traditions with them. And I think that the melding of the Chicago music scene that had been around in the 20s and whatnot with the new Southern influence and gospel influence that was coming up led to some really interesting musical branches. And one of those musical branches was soul music. Sam Cooke is one of the pioneers and is considered by many, myself included, as the best soul singer of all time, the pinnacle mm. of soul. Nice. I don't know if anybody if anybody has any uh, objections to him being called the best soul singer of all time. Well, the guy I wanted to compare him to, no, I, I agree. Sam Cooke is just an excellent, impeccable singer. I think he has great tone, great control, all the things we talk about. And clearly he wrote just excellent songs. We're going to get into them. Yeah. But the other guy that came up in my mind, and I wanted to hear about where he fits in this timeline, is Solomon Burke, who we talked about in a very sure. early episode. Solomon Burke was later. Like, Sam Cooke was before Solomon Burke. Solomon Burke was, like, coming out in the early 60s. Like, he had some stuff in the late 50s, but, like, he was really more early 60s. And, like, Sam Cooke, basically, you want to talk about, like, where his career really kicked off. In 1950, at the age of 19, he became the lead singer slash frontman of a gospel group called the Soul Stirs. And they were an established band. He replaced a founder who had previously been the frontman, and he came in as the new frontman and really helped to propel the Soul Stirs to a really great live act. And they credit him with bringing gospel music to a younger audience because one of the things that we, we've said it before about many artists, like Sam Cooke was a good looking dude. And he was up there with that voice that is just like velvet being rubbed on your cheek. It's fantastic. And he was attracting younger audiences to soul music. And apparently like the younger people would come to see the soul stirs. They would rush the stage, get up to the front because they wanted to see Sam. He's a charismatic dude. 
with a voice of an angel, and that really propelled the Soul Stirrers into this like regionally touring act that mm. was a way for him to really make it as a professional musician. But they were road dogs, no doubt about it. There's a apparently in a three year period in the mid 1950s, they played a thousand shows in three years. Jesus, wow. that's crazy. Which, that's a lot of fucking shows. I mean, that is like you're taking over 300 a year. That's yeah, you're taking re- less remarkable. than a month off in the course of a year. Like, wow, that's pretty intense. And this is. Lest we forget, right? This is Chitlin Circuit type stuff. This is using mm-hmm. the Green Book to figure out where you can even, what restaurants and hotels you can even walk into. Right. It's totally fucked up. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Like touring is lit- legitimately dangerous, is my point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not all that economically prosperous, which we'll talk about later. But you're right. He was not playing you know, Radio City Music Hall. He was not playing uh, L.A. They were playing down market, rural, southern, or like rural, northern, but like, you know, like Illinois. There's some really shitty parts of Illinois, like southern Illinois, that are not Chicago, like a million miles away from Chicago. It was that type of uh, crowd that they were playing to. But We apologize to our Illinois listeners ahead of time. <laughs> we, we know your hate mail is coming. And just to be clear, there are plenty of very dicey rural areas here in California. Absolutely. And in Delaware, too. Lots of them Don't in Delaware. Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to... I Get us to the music as quick as we can, all right? We have a guy who has not only grown up in a tradition of interactive, very high-energy, long musical experiences at church, goes out, brings the gospel stuff on the road. This is a man who has a control of the music. He has a control of the crowd. He has control of the band. And I think that that is... Very evident on this opening track. So I want to jump in just a little bit more to feel it, don't fight it. It's not that long of a song, but what I want you to listen to, dear listeners, is as we get towards the end of the song, listen to how he is cueing the band for changes and for ending the song in a way that is clearly not they have the sheet music in front of them and it's all like well i get to this bar and then i do this he is giving the vocal cues to the band and they are following him along adam you talked about the band not being as tight as your band i imagine your band was doing a singular version of a song that is just like this is the version that we do and he's doing a much more loose version of like follow me type of performance and i want you as listeners out there to like get a sense of like what this sort of follow me type of band leadership is with a little bit more from the song feeling in terms of my like just overall general impressions of this album i mean it's very hard for an album of live material to be the definitive version of the songs 
Maybe you have one definitive version of a song on a live album. Maybe you have. It'd be very rare that you would have all of the songs be a definitive version of a live album. What this does, it doesn't make the definitive version. I think this gets across the sense of being in the room and the sense of being with the band in a particularly awesome way. Yeah, I, I agree. So the, the elephant in the room here is that if you, and I'll speak for myself, I was familiar with almost all of these songs from listening to Sam Cooke's studio recordings for many years, and I know him primarily through those studio recordings. And I love, so I, I knew the tunes, I liked the tunes, but this is the first time hearing him live at all. And the stark contrast of how he lets loose, you can hear him sweat. It You can tell it's a small room, the crowd is super lively he's working really hard the banter is up like everything about it is just you're right you're right there in a tiny club yeah i noted that his voice sounded like he smoked a pack of cigarettes before he went on stage i don't think he did i think it was just the fact that it was live and he was singing loud loud into a microphone to get over the band, to get over the crowd and when you do that your voice kind of gets a little crunchy and it was a real nice contrast to the very, very, you know, smooth Sam Cooke studio stuff. But I I don't want to exactly disagree with you on the microphone dynamics, but I think what was impressive to me, he sounds much more James Brown-esque in this recording than he ever did on those studio. Oh, sure. This kind of wailing, almost rock and roll style singing. And I, I personally think it's a singing style choice, right? Because I was really impressed by how you're right. It does kind of feel like his voice is going to give out before the set is over. And yet <laughs> he stays with it 100%. He doesn't he does not stop the energy train rolling. He keeps ramping it up, in fact. And he doesn't even take breaks between the lines. He just adds new lyrics in between the lines like where normal singers would would take a break, let alone between the songs where normal singers would maybe take a sip of water or something. I feel like there is a crowd interaction where he's just talking to them about things that are happening like he'll flub lines and he'll be like oh let me do that again people and bring and like i have listened to some like live dolly parton stuff and you get a lot of that in like the sort of country dolly parton type of music where they're just like this is just us in a room and we're all kind of making music and we'll talk about it a little bit more but you know the, I mean, I guess what, like the ninth member of the band is the crowd in this recording. Mm. They are really into it. They're really responsive. They are loud enough on this recording. And in fact, there are three different recordings of this album, one of which was the original recording that was released. It had a little bit of overdub instrumentation on it. And then there was another version that was released that removed the overdub instrumentation, but lowered the crowd sound. And then there was a third version that was released that pumped the crowd sound back up. And I'm pretty sure that the version that you get on Spotify is the second version of that, where there is less crowd sound and no overdub instrumentation. Yeah, less ambient. Because I I looked at the live albums that were released in 1963, and there was an Etta James album called Etta James Rocks the House. 
And that was also a fantastic album. And the crowd is, it feels like you're standing in the crowd on that Etta James one. This one's still, the mix is such that you still feel that you're a little removed. Maybe you're on stage with Sam, but you're not in the crowd, which yeah. I, I felt, you know, you could hear that in some other contemporary recordings. Just in terms of live recording techniques, we were not that deep into, you know, it wasn't yeah. that long before this where guys were just bringing glorified tape recorders to the show and sitting in the audience and holding a microphone out towards the stage. And that was, that was a Charlie Parker record, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is 63. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. This is 63. It's very early. I mean, like those portable recording, you know, uh, setups were probably suitcases at the time. There's not like, you know, like now I could get a better sampling of sound with my iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. Sound, sound design in general was just so much younger in its evolution at this point. I mean, I'm, I have an anecdote that involves the Beatles at Shea Stadium, but if you remember, that was still a couple years away, and they walked out of that. They they couldn't hear themselves at all when they were playing in that stadium. They're like, literally, we can't hear anything. The sound mm -hmm. is not made. You know, we just don't have the technology to play a stadium and even hear Ringo, who's standing next to me, banging on drums. So yeah, yeah it's it's pretty early on. Well, that that certainly fits Adam with your statement about he is singing loud. He is pushing his vocals. Now, there are, I think, two reasons for that. Number one, you're right. I'm sure the room sounded like shit. This is not like the Doug Fur Lounge in Portland, which is crafted to be like a perfectly sonic room. And it, like, it is just no a corners, fucking right. <laughs> square room with yeah. probably like corrugated fucking siding on there that sounds bouncing around everywhere. How, how would you know what the Doug Fur Lounge is like, Tom? Oh, because we played the Doug Fur Lounge. It was great. Hey, yeah. I mean, it sounds classy as all hell. It so. does. Well, they have, at the Doug Fur Lounge, they have underneath the, the dance floor, they have gigantic subwoofers underneath Jesus. the dance floor and i was playing bass at the time so you get this like, yeah. vroom, vroom, sound is really that's really cool yeah that's pretty badass so tom are you gonna are you gonna segue into talking about the club itself because i now that we're, since we're talking about the crowd right this was a a black club a small black club in what is miami. it overtown overton yeah. neighborhood in miami which is sort yeah. of the equivalent of harlem in miami sure. right yes so he's really playing you know, I'm sure this is going to go throughout the story that there's these two sides of Sam Cooke. There's the white America palatable version that goes on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and sings and, you know, is in everyone's home and all the white girls, white teenage girls are buying these singles. And then there's sort of this version. And that was one of the reasons the recording got buried. But it's just worth mentioning. This is definitely his what he sees as his audience. So I have to imagine he sure. himself is also energized. Well, so Sam Cooke, two things on that. Number one, he refused to play in segregated places. That was like a big thing of his. He did not want to play in segregated places. He was big into the civil rights movement and would steadfastly refuse to want to play segregated rooms. And so I think what the record executives that – commissioned this live recording did not realize is that that meant that he almost exclusively played to black audiences. Right. right and so right. he had been on this circuit for a long time. Like you said, Rob, it's the Chitlin circuit for a long time. He had been playing to exclusively black audiences or like 95% black audiences. And then he had made this turn into making this very smooth and universally accessible pop music that was very popular with white audiences and 
they were like, oh, well, you're just going to get up on stage and do that. And he's like, yeah, but the audience that buys my records is not the audience that comes to my shows. And so you do get a different version of Sam Cooke in this because, you know, Sam Cooke, he was a gospel singer, but he was a rabble rouser. You know, like he had a little bit of a kind of dangerous side to him. We'll talk a bit, a bit later about how he was a womanizer. He actually spent three months in jail for delivering pornographic materials to a friend. Jesus. This is like back in the day when you could go to jail for fucking porno. He got into a drunken car accident that left Lou Rawls in the hospital. And also his chauffeur was killed. And it says in Wikipedia that his chauffeur was killed. It doesn't say he was driving. The biography that I read heavily implied that he was actually driving the car at the time that the chauffeur was killed and that they were all intoxicated. He had a little bit of a hard living style, a hard living style that could, if he got caught, put you on a chain gang. <laughs> well, there well, we go. song right now, ladies and gentlemen, that's designed to make you feel good. Designed to make you feel good, says, I hear something saying. So we are back. That was the rockin' live version of Chain Gang. What do you got to say about that? <laughs> this took this tune, which I already enjoyed. Like, it took it from a pretty square, albeit fun, studio recording to a really rockin' and, like, almost sexual song. Oh, yeah. Ugh. With the oohs and the ahs. Ah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, that crowd participation is killer, right? Like, I, I, I've never been to a show where people were that responsive to what the, to what the singer was saying. I had a couple notes on this song. I know we say we weren't going to have a ton of, like, production and, and instrumentation notes, but there is a moment at 140 where the drummer is on the ride cymbal, oh, but he goes he from playing, like, the crash to he starts hitting the bell, oh, and it's like, ding, 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 and it's just completely, like... It, it just turns into like a a, 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 tr- a freight train now coming at you when he starts hitting on that bell and everything just starts moving. It's it's awesome. You know what it kind of sounds like? It kind of sounds like dudes breaking rocks with sledgehammers. Like, yeah. oh, it's that's really, good it's really good. Now, you want to talk about like the reality of what he's talking about? Like, you hear it's the happiest song yeah, about chain gangs I've ever heard. Of the men. It's like you're like sentenced on some trumped up charges yeah. to do 12 years <laughs> in fucking Louisiana. Literally breaking yeah. rocks has no yeah. point at all. And you're on, you're doing that along not only highways, but also byways. Oh my God, the byways right. are the worst. The byways are the worst. <laughs> I was listening to this one final time today, driving around in the car, and I, I thought to myself, what the hell is a fucking byway? 
Yeah, it doesn't even rank as like a southern highway, which is usually just like a two-lane road with fields on either side. They're like, well, the byways are the ones without pavement. That's that's what they are. That, yeah, that feels like a songwriter's invention from Tin Pan Alley days or something. <laughs> so it rhymes. Let's do it. Yeah. So I think this version also cooks a bit more than the studio version because it is actually three half steps higher. The original album studio version is in the key of G. This live version is in the key of B flat, which is three half steps up and again allows him to push a little more when when you raise the pitch of your voice, you're driving a little harder. So I think that that also uh, is is why this one cooks a bit more. I got to tell you, Rob, I was in the same boat as you of like, I enjoyed the song, but like the lyrics of like, give me water, I'm thirsty, my work is so hard, they hit so much better in this version. We're just like, oh, we're talking about modern day slavery, right? Like you're literally like chained <laughs> to each other, breaking rocks on the side of the road. Because yeah, yeah, like you old. looked at a white woman in a Woolworths or something like that. Come on. Jesus. It's a little too real. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's a little too real. But like the smooth, like, that's the sound of the men that reached number two. On the pop charts, not yeah. the R and B charts, the pop charts. Yeah. So again, I'm going to tie this. I'm going to tie this back to Aretha, but she somewhat modeled her career off of the Sam Cooke method of of success, which was start in the gospel scene. She wanted to hit on the quote unquote black scene and then do a crossover into pop, just like Sam Cooke. Yep. Well. I think a few people did that, right? Marvin Gaye also yeah, sure, started in sure. gospel. Yeah. It, it was common. And in a way, maybe we can debate this, but soul is kind of a mixture of gospel and pop. Oh, absolutely. In fact, yeah. one yeah. of the things that Sam Cooke was sort of famous for saying is that, you know, you can take songs where they say Jesus and you just put baby in there and it works just as well. Oh, I'm totally turning on the the, the religious station here in Philly and it works just start well. stealing stuff. It works just change as some well chords, change some words. Yeah. Also, I just want to point out, and this is not a diss on Sam Cooke, I think this is the first instance, but not, certainly not the last, of his melodic trick that he uses in all his songs. Ma, 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 ma. <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah. Ma, 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 yeah. Yes. Does yeah. it in almost every song? That's like his end of song vamp maneuver. Yeah, we so said that's like the A and R guy sitting in the back, being like tapping the tapping the board. Like you only did one on this song. We need another one. We need at least two in every it's, song. But he's got a signature. It's kind of like the Michael Jackson hee hee. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Yep. He is a like. First of all, he's he's just a killer singer. The fact that he maintains his control when he pushes. Because he pushes hard for some of those notes. You're right. He's bringing songs up in key. He's like, make it harder for me. Make it harder for me to hit. And never does he devolve into, and I'm not saying this is a diss, but like there was a divide at the time in terms of gospel singers. Sam Cooke was on the smooth control side, but he he wasn't a shouter. And they talk about like Little Richard was a shouter. Little Richard right. was just shouting at you. He was doing it on studio albums. He was doing it live. I listened to some live Little Richard as a comparison, and he is shouting the whole time. And it sounds great, but it is not that pinpoint control that Sam Cooke has with his voice, even when he's pushing, which is incredibly impressive. Just the physics of what you have to do with your throat and your tongue and your mouth to make that happen is great. Yeah, and the distinction for those who may not have been in front of a microphone is... 
I think we talked about it on the Credence episode with John Fogarty. I mean, in general, a lot of rock singing is more just push hard and you kind of get get through it with loudness. But when you're watching something like American Idol or some singing competition, they're typically looking for precise control of the sort that, that Tom is referring to. Yes. It's like, uh, you know, Tori Amos versus Alanis Morissette, right? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. There was a turn in Sam Cooke's career. And this is kind of like as he is getting to the end of his time with the Soul Spinners. He kind of made this observation that they had hit basically a financial ceiling. It's like our audiences are poor and rural and predominantly black, and that is not who is driving record sales. These guys will come see us play, but they're not the people who have a big record collection at home. You know, these are luxury items for them. I need to approach the people for whom the disposable income allows them to spend on records, allows them to spend on, you know, a hi-fi system or whatever. He had always been very conscious of the business end of the music business. And he was one of the first black artists that really took control of his own destiny. Um, And so, all right, he's with the Soul Spinners. They're signed to Specialty Records. And he basically says, hey, if I want to get real financial success and real financial comfort, I need to get myself out of just this strictly gospel vein I need to write some pop songs. I need to write some love songs. I need to make songs that are going to be palatable to a wider audience. And so he basically gets the blessing of specialty records to record secular music. And that was that was the big jump, the jump from gospel to secular. And he records his first single, Lovable, which he released under Dale Cook, not Sam Cook. Because he wanted to preserve his gospel cred, because that was a big oh, thing. Wow, his gospel singers going over to do secular was really frowned on, and so he was like, "If this doesn't hit, I gotta, you know, I gotta make sure that I can still go back to gospel." Because to some people in that world, secular was akin to satanic, Satan, <laughs> sure. evil. Yes. Now, did Dale Cook have the E at the end of his? <laughs> I believe though. So Dale Cook did have the E. He had, oh, all right. he had a brother whose fucking name is escaping me right now, who who he is credited with writing a couple of songs, basically to hide royalties from bad record deals, that okay. has his name with the cook without the E on it. And they're like, they'll never know we're related. Like, right. <laughs> mm. Identity fraud was much easier back in the day. Yes. So basically, like, specialty records is... They uh, they say it's okay. You can record secular music, but then there's this huge blow up where one of the the leaders of Specialty Records comes in and hears him playing a Gershwin song, and is like, "That's it. None of this Gershwin secular garbage. You can't do that." It's <laughs> like, come on, George Gershwin's a little too racy for you. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I'm a, I'm learning a Gershwin song right now on yeah, the piano, right. and it is not racy. Let me it's tell you. <laughs> Square as square. Like, my grandparents thought Gershwin was square. Like, that's how square that shit is. But basically, like, the guy's like, you can't do this. And Sam Cooke's like, well, fuck you. I quit your record label. I'm walking away. Walks away from his record label, joins uh, Keen Records. But very shortly thereafter, this is in, like, 1957 that that blow-up happens. Very shortly thereafter, he joins RCA Victor. 
RCA, big label at the time. And Sam Cooke, to his credit, gets himself in 1960 a $100,000 guaranteed payout from the record Jesus. Which is equivalent to almost a million dollars these days. Wow. Wasn't he like ultimately one of the biggest selling, next to Elvis, I think he might have been the second best selling recording artist of the late 50s or something like that? He was the first black artist to ever have a number one on the pop charts and a number one on the R&B charts. He hit number one in both with You Send Me. And that was the one that really put him out there as they were looking at this. This is an entirely new audience that we can sell to in like selling records to black people. And he's selling records to white people. Everybody's buying his music. He was a hot item at the time. And he was apparently a very shrewd negotiator. He basically said, after 20 years, all royalties come back to me. Betting on himself. He's like, I'm writing fucking classics. And these are all coming back to me in 20 years. Savvy. Savvy on him. Savvy on him. So when he's with RCA, they are like, okay, well, you had You Send Me. It was a big hit. Let's get some more smooth songs. Let's get some more good love songs that white teenage girls can listen to and not be freaked out. And a great example of that is the song Cupid. Maybe you remember this one. Very nice little song. Nice and sweet. It says, Cupid, draw back your bow and let your arrow go straight to my lover's heart for me. Nobody but me and the Cupid, please hear my cry and let your arrow fly. I mean, what's not to like about just a stone classic song. I love, Absolutely. love, love the melody on this tune. Ah. Great. This is one of those songs, by the way, I have seen uh, from a mutual friend of ours who was like, doesn't sing, doesn't do karaoke, but was like, oh, I want to do some karaoke. I like that Sam Cooke song, Cupid. I'll do this song. Oh, God, no. It is so hard to sing. You butchered it. Butchered it. It's so deceptively hard to sing this song. He really does push it so well on this. I was really surprised to find that he wrote most of his material. Oh, yeah. Right? Because I feel like maybe it was later that they were having, you know, the the stable of writers. I guess when you sign onto a major record label is when they said, okay, well, here's our stable of 50 writers are going to be cranking out songs. And he didn't have that luxury early in his career. So he was just writing amazing material. Yeah. He's like, well, I'll just, how about I just, how about I just write killer classics instead? How about that? Is that easier? That makes yeah, that that life a little bit easier. We should point out too. Yeah. If he wrote so many good tunes. There's one, one of the ones he's most famous for. It's not on this recording is what a wonderful world, not the Louis Armstrong thing, but the don't know much about history. Yeah. Track. Yeah, he's he was he was a killer. He must have come in to that contract as just saying, I'm a songwriter, end of story. I don't need Lieber and Stoller to do anything. I don't think that that was... I don't think that he wrote What a Wonderful World. I think that that was written by... For some reason, I didn't think that he wrote that. Maybe you might be right. He might have written that. Oh, you know who else, You know who wrote that? He was a co-writer on that with Lou Adler and Herb Alpert. Oh, Because there's a low voice on there, right? It's one of those guys, science book or whatever. No, no, he's always <laughs> got he's always got those gospel background singers and all yeah. the studio recordings Break doing. Talk. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Okay, well, fair enough. Lou Lou Adler's 
Lou Adler's some like record exec uh, extraordinaire type guy who's you know behind the scenes player and in, in everything that's happened yeah. in the music business, right? He co-owned the Roxy Theater in Hollywood. Yeah, you always talk about what's the song you always talk about? Uh, oh, fish. Was made to swim in the ocean. Uh, you were made <laughs> like, for me. You yeah, were made for me. The yeah, cheesy pretty, background vocals. Pretty time. dorky, but it's still, yeah. still well done. Well, okay. Well, I stand corrected. But anyway, he is known for that. That too. Yeah. Well, apparently that was also one of those songs where like they nobody thought that was going to be a hit. And even Herb Alpert was like, don't record this song. This is a fucking garbage song. What are you talking about? It's gigantic, massive hit for him. But getting back to Cupid, one of the things I really do have to say, I am such a fan of like mouth sounds in songs where it's like it makes the arrow sound <laughs> i fucking love yes, that yes it's the so arrow great. sound yes i totally love that. know what you're talking about yes. like michael jackson does that shit all the time with like backgrounds i believe that like um i think it's the rizza on that track liquid swords is doing a lot of like I just want you to know, Tom, that I'm going to isolate I love mouth sounds in songs, and I'm going to bring this up when you least expect it and when you least want to hear about it. No, no, I just, I'm sure it's terrible in the wrong hands. That's my point. (laughs) Speaking of bad noises, I will say uh, at the the 232 mark of this song, it's a bit of a free for all. They're kind of losing it. Help me. The guitar player is kind of like just strumming too fast, and I think the bass player is hitting the wrong chord, and then the drummer's like, What the hell's going on? And they kind of <laughs> land and they kind of end it, so it just uh, made me giggle. Oh, I love how, like, at 13 seconds in, the bass just fucks up. Very right. noticeably. <laughs> yes, I have that. And <laughs> that's it, awesome. It's one of those things where it's like, well, that's just on track forever. For yep. eternity. <laughs> and what's considered one of the best live albums of all time. That's just going to be right there, right. hanging out on like the hit song on that album. There you go. <laughs> but is this one of the ones where he like segues directly? Look, I mean, some live albums are cut cut apart and maybe they, they edit some stuff out. But a lot of these tracks feel like they literally hit the last beat of the last song. And then Sam's like, we got another one for you, two, three, four. And then they're into the next tune. It's a 36-minute medley, Yeah, honestly. It really is. And he is such a goddamn good performer in terms of his crowd interaction. Like, he's talking to the crowd as they're leading into... It's like a DJ where he's like, all right, up next we got Metallica. And you talk, like, right until the (laughs) actual music starts. He's doing that the whole time. Not even... No, in in between the lines. I I took note of it on one of the, the future songs, but he's literally just... They have the lines of the verse, and then he's inserting more talking in between the lines. Like, yeah. not giving himself any break. So you want to talk about a song that is just a raucous, good time party. We're going to talk about another song that's a huge hit for Sam Cooke. The next song on our focus list that we're going to talk about here is Twisting the Night Away. A two, a put it in it let me tell you about a place Somewhere up New York way Or where the people are so gay Twisting the night away Oh man, they have a lot of fun They put trouble on the run Oh man, you kind of hold me young Twisting the night away You know what? It's a great simple tune. My only... I feel like it's a little buried in my mind with this whole... The first song was called The Twist, 
the the chubby checker tune is that correct that is correct yes and then there was like this whole litany of twist related material is that correct absolutely let's twist again like we did last summer and is this one of those the peppermint twist this is one of those songs yes this is one of those songs what you have to do rob and this is where your mental uh gymnastics will help here is every time they say twisting you just have to say fucking because that's clearly what they're talking about (laughs) jesus absolutely what they're talking about let's fuck again like we did last summer (laughs) wow it's true all right this clearly is about sex it's the most tame version of talking about sex but they're clearly talking about want to have sex right fucking nothing like (laughs) fucking This is another one. The original key is in A, and live, they did it up, another half step to B flat. I'm not sure if that's a function. I know that there are certain keys that horns, uh, specifically trumpets, do really well in, but I'm not sure there were trumpets in this Two horn sax section. I heard lots of sax, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so I'm... All right. I mean, sax is, uh, sax is also weird. I know nothing about sax, but I know that they play in like flat keys a whole lot more than... Right, uh, yeah, yeah that, that is accurate. Wait, I want to get back to the sax, but I just want to point out, you mentioned Peppermint Twist, and I, my mind's been reeling since then. I just double-checked. That is from the band Joey D and the Starlighters, which was the group that Joe Pesci played in. Yes, that is true. So I just want to throw that <laughs> out there. That that's, you can look that one up. He was a, he was Music a guitar player. trivia. Yeah. For my next Quizzo night. Yeah. All right, well done. <laughs> yes, he started out as a musician playing guitar in Joey D and the Starlaters, whose big hit was the Peppermint Twist. Yep. He would hide behind the kick drum. I mean, there was a whole <laughs> twist era because I, and like, I, I hate to hammer on this point too much, but I really do think like they found a way to talk about sex that wasn't directly talking about sex. And everyone's like, oh my God, we can talk about sex now. Let's just do like, that's what we've been wanting to talk about this whole time. (laughs) Okay. But that could be literally any, I mean, the term rock and roll refers to sex. Like that could be anything. They could put anything in there. We get it. It could, but everybody knew what twist meant. So they were like, yeah, let's just do that. It's, you know, it's the mental handles already built in. Except all the little kids at the malt shop. (laughs) They really thought it was twisting. Exactly. Yeah. They're all doing the, uh, 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 Let's see, you know, it's like the all the kids dancing around a wannabe by uh, the Spice Girls, where it's like, you do realize that she's saying "slam me body down and wind it all around," right? Like, they're like, no, it's about friendship. Like, <laughs> no, uh, it's about girl power. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, but listen, on the topic of fucking, <laughs> it cannot be understated how much of a serial philanderer Sam Cooke was. This man liked the women, got around. Uh, one of his good friends, I think it was maybe Lou Rawls, said, Sam Cooke will walk by a good girl to get to a whore because whores are easier and there's no attachment with the whores. And the good girls are the ones that get you in trouble, basically. Like, he was married to his wife, Barbara. Had two kids with his wife, Barbara. By all accounts, a happily married man. And at one point over a five-week period in the early 1960s, he had three separate girlfriends give birth to daughters. Whoa. He got around a lot, and he apparently liked to have sex with prostitutes. And that is what led to his untimely demise. 
So this is the point of the podcast. We're going to talk about Sam Cooke's death. And it is a fascinating story. Very tragic. I mean, he was he was killed in 1964, right? So you talk about from 1957 when he went secular to 1964. All of this stuff happened in a seven-year period. And he Jeez. was just cranking out the damn hits. And right towards the end of that time was when he really started getting into, like, socially conscious music. He had gotten to the point where he was financially stable, and he was basically saying, I want to make music that matters. God damn it. And it was really all predicated upon blowing in the wind. He heard blowing in the wind, and he was like, how is a white guy describing the plight of my people better than any of my people are? We are abdicating our responsibility to use our power to sing about this. First of all, Adam thinks there's too much harmonica on that track, so it's out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Never listened to it. Done. But, Turned off the radio. But maybe you're going to get to this one, Tom. But also, didn't his young son drown in the pool, like in 1963? At two years old. Oh, my God. 1963, he drowned in the pool. And so I heard people saying that kind of cast a pall over his life and made him rethink some things and maybe took him to a darker place yes, as well. I don't know. Absolutely. You know, there was this movie that came out a couple of years ago, One Night in Miami, about him being friends with and hanging out one night with Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, Malcolm mm-hmm. X, and Jim Brown. And even though that movie is obviously fictionalized, they did apparently hang out the night of that Muhammad Ali beat Sonny Liston. Yep. But they were they were friends, and I imagine that some of Muhammad, uh, sorry, Malcolm X's ideas and Muhammad Ali was about to convert to the Nation of Islam. Uh, you know, some of that must have affected him as well. Oh, absolutely. He went to that Sonny Liston uh, Cassius Clay fight with Malcolm X. Like they sat together at that fight. He actually produced Muhammad Ali's. Uh, he had a song that he did. Um, and Sam Cooke was the producer on that song. So, like, he created a, a bit of the sort of celeb not created, but he helped to yeah. fuel the celebrity around Muhammad Ali. Totally. And, I mean, yeah, they were they were all buddies of a sort. And, again, I'm basing this on the movie I watched this week, which is a, a good movie. I would recommend it. But it was kind of about powerful black men in a pre-civil rights era or right in the heat of the civil rights era debating what it meant to have this power and to have this platform. They're kind of all at the top of their game and they're trying to, they're kind of arguing about what that means. And, you know, at least in the movie, Malcolm X is pushing Sam Cooke to be more political for that reason. right? And that culminates in the song, A Change Is Gonna Come. Not on this album, but dear listeners, if you have not heard the song, A Change Is Gonna Come. Ooh, we, oh man, it's a killer. And it is beautifully beautifully composed there's like strings and then a horn section kind of takes over prominently on a on a verse and there's timpanies it's it was apparently so onerous to perform that he didn't really perform it all that much but he went on it was the johnny carson show and they were like you can't perform this song this song is a downer this song is gonna you know make people think that maybe what is happening in america isn't the best thing in the it's universe problem, and, right? yeah, golly gee whiz aren't we the best and he was like absolutely not i'm doing that song it was a it pointed in a direction that he could have gone in that is such a loss for creative output and for just I think the music appreciation world and the social world in general like he could have been so amazing in the second phase of his career it was unfortunately cut short he was apparently 
one night in 1963, I believe it was December 11th of 1963, he was having drinks at a place in L.A. called Tony's Restaurant. He had just taken out a large amount of cash to buy Christmas presents for his family. And he was having some martinis in this bar and was apparently not shy about showing people that he had a lot of money in his pocket and was buying drinks and being raucous. And at one point in the night, he ends up sequestered in a corner with this woman, Elisa Boyer, who is a like half Asian, half white prostitute who was kind of known in the area as what they referred to as a drunk roller. She would take men uh, who yes. were drunk and mm-hmm. steal their money, um, right. either by them being drunk and then passing out, or she would hit them over the head when their guard was down and then take their money. She did not know who Sam Cook was, did not know he was a celebrity, didn't know he was Sam F. and Cook. At one point, they get into Sam Cook's Ferrari and they drive to the Hacienda Motel, which was a $3 a night motel. Shitty. Even back then, like, they're like, this is just a really cheap, crappy motel. $3 was still $3. $3 was still $3. (laughs) Apparently, Sam Cook is in the bathroom. He is naked. She steals most of his clothes and his wallet and takes her clothes and runs out of the room. Now, it is known that she called the police from a payphone and said that he was trying to rape and kidnap her. It is also known that Sam Cook then leaves the room with just his underwear and a suit jacket on and is running around the motel saying, like, where is this fucking woman with all of my money? Ends up going to the motel office, and there's a couple of different versions of the story. There's the version that is told by the woman um, who uh, eventually uh, killed him, Bertha Franklin. There's also another version that's told, oddly enough, by Ike Turner. And so the version from Bertha Franklin is that he comes into the office and he is being very belligerent and he starts attacking her and she, in fear of her life, shoots him three times with a thirty-two caliber revolver and Jesus. kills him. The version <sighs> that is told by Ike Turner, which again is impossible to substantiate, is that Sam Cooke came in and found uh, uh, Bertha and uh, Elisa counting out all of his money on the counter and freaks out and then goes to get his money back and they shoot and kill him. Mm. What is known, there's there's very little that is actually known. One of the biographers basically said, anybody who believes the actual facts of that are available is not paying attention because clearly something happened here. There's a lot of inconsistencies with the story. And they quickly buried the investigation, basically didn't do an investigation on it, right? Did not do an investigation. So what basically happened is that they said, oh, this is just another shoeless black rapist in South Central LA and who gives a shit? And they didn't do any investigation. It wasn't until several days later where somebody was like, why is there still a fucking Ferrari parked in the parking lot here? And they were like, oh, there's a like a car that's worth more than this entire motel that's about to get towed because it's sitting outside. And they checked the registration and like, oh, that's Sam Cook. And they're like, oh, that shoeless underwear wearing oh, black dude in the morgue that we completely wrote off is actually this international superstar. And but by that point. It was kind of like, oh, well, you know, it is sort of what it is. So 
couple of inconsistencies in this story that I find to be really disturbing. Number one, he was shot with a 32 caliber bullet three times. The pistol that they took from Bertha Franklin was a 22 caliber pistol. So he was not killed with the pistol that she had on her. Number two, Bertha Franklin had previously been a madam running prostitutes out of that uh, motel. Number three, Bertha Franklin killed a man in almost the exact same circumstances six months before Sam Cooke was killed. Like literally the exact same thing happened where she's like, yeah, this guy was charging in here being all crazy and I shot him and killed him. And it was like he got enrolled for his money. Fourth, Elisa Boyer, within a year of the death of Sam Cooke, was arrested for another murder. (laughs) And somehow they were just like, yeah, you know, justifiable homicide. Let's all move on. Jeez, man. Which is. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. And that's like one of those I, things. I had, I had glanced over the detail, like, well, not the details, but just that, that he'd been killed at a motel. But Mike, I didn't know any of these additional things. So it is. Thank I, you for the research, Tom. Well, it's funny because I remember, insane. Rob, you and I were at um, the hearth in San Francisco standing out having a drink. And I had put on A Change Is Gonna Come. I love that song. And we're, I was standing outside, and there was a guy there, was a young black man, and he was very, he was very into Sam Cooke. But he was like, he was fucking killed because people didn't like that he was with a white woman. He was killed by white people because they didn't like that he was with a white woman. Bertha Franklin is a black woman who killed him as well. It was literally just like, we have no idea who he is. We don't really give a shit about that. We're just like- They were a, just running their play. They're just running their play, basically. <laughs> yeah. And he got caught up in it because he was a big fan of prostitutes. Apparently, mm. that led to his downfall. It would have been nice if somebody had mercy on him. And fellas, that make me feel good, just put it right back. Yeah. Somebody have mercy. Tell me what is wrong with me. Oh, help me right now. Ha! Somebody have mercy, baby. I want to know what is wrong with me. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I don't know how I stand. The thing that woman do to me. All right, so that was Somebody Have Mercy. We don't really need to talk too much about this one. This is just another one of those blues vamps, but I just kind of want to point out that, like, it takes a really great vocal talent to make that sort of simple blues vamp actually still be interesting and really work. Like, this, like I, I would be, I would not be surprised at all if you were like, this was not a written song. He was just like, play in C sharp, and I'm just going to sing over it. Somebody <laughs> have mercy. You know, like, this doesn't seem like a real song, right? There is an acceptable saxophone solo in this song. I will allow it, Your Honor. Oh, I will allow God. the sax oh, solo. Okay. Oh, the judge of saxophones <laughs> sitting on his high, off in his ivory tower. <laughs> the Hammond B3 stacked up there. No, we, so we, we haven't said the saxophone player's name yet. It's this guy, King Curtis, King who is Curtis. in his own right. Oh, that's King Curtis. A legit player. In fact, was in Aretha's backup band and right. plays yeah 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 plays sax on respect and he also was mm-hmm. in the coasters so he's, he's the sax player on yakety yak and other coasters hits and he also his hit single as a solo artist was soul twist which i guess is what the band is vamping <laughs> on as sam comes out and it's yeah, also yeah. sam calls it out i think in the last tune when he's singing the song about uh, having a party when he's talking to the DJ and he's talking about records to put on and he's just like improving lines. He tells the DJ to put on King Curtis's 
record. But but listen, I this is a little bit of a divergence, but I went down a little wiki wormhole. So King Curtis has this band called The Kingpins. They end up being Aretha's backing band. And guess who else is in The Kingpins? A one Bernard Purdy, the hitmaker. Oh, yes. So they played together. But also, and this is before Bernard Purdy's time because he's a little younger, but they opened for the Beatles at Shea Stadium. Oh, no way. Right. And that's a hell of a gig. It's a hell of a gig. Damn. And one last fact, because I was clicking around through Wikipedia and I ended up on Bernard Purdy's Wikipedia page. Did you guys know he grew up in Elkton, Maryland? <laughs> no <laughs> way. Just a hop, skip, and a jump, ladies and gentlemen, from where we all grew up in Delaware. But yeah, he was there until he was uh, like a teenager, I think. Yeah. Because I remember him talking about how he came up with the Purdy shuffles. He liked to listen to... The I guess the trains going along the train tracks and I had this. It's the like, train. There's this whole video. The yeah, train that goes this whole video York. about yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Nice. One of the reasons I wanted to bring this this song up particularly is um, I'm sure you guys picked up at the end where he's like, uh, "What's wrong with me? It ain't that leukemia." And he like name checks leukemia. Very odd. It's very odd. Yes. <laughs> so apparently Sam Cooke was like a tabloid favorite back in the day. And there would be all kinds of wild stories about him in the tabloids. And one of the wild stories was that Sam Cooke has leukemia. He's on the verge of dying. And he has promised to give his eyes to Ray Charles. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I like so that. The tabloids haven't gotten much yeah, better. I like that nothing has changed years. with the National yeah. Enquirer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Like, and Batboy's going to get his ears. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, next, we're going to go on to... I mean, top 10 songs of all time for me. Bring it on home to me. Let's bust out this. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, oh, bring it to me. Bring your sweet love. Bring it on home to me. Yeah, yeah. I gotta tell you this, baby. No, you know. Add my praise to the pile, Tom. I was going to say this is one of my favorite songs of all time. And karaoke has already been mentioned, but Tom and I have many times sung this song together at karaoke. As a duet. Yes. With Tom singing the Lou Rawls harmony from the studio version. And it is excellent. And it is a barn burner. It is. And I find it very hard to love this version because I love that version so much. But this is still a pretty damn good version. That two and a half minute intro where he's he's singing, you send, he's doing the you, you send, send me. me. Yeah. Or he references it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's just basically busting out lines from you send me. Masterclass in the drama build. Oh, my God. I By the end of it, I was like, oh, where are you bringing me? I'm so <laughs> ready. <laughs> that, and that feels, it is, it partially feels like an improvised vamp in terms of what he's saying, but that was the one place I could tell, because you can definitely tell when the band switches in to bring it on home. And, and interestingly, I noticed at that moment, when we play this clip, Sam seems like he struggles just a bit to find the new key that he's in. 
The second line, he comes in great, but that first one, he's struggling a little bit with the change. I tell her, listen here, baby, I want you to listen to this song right here for me. Got to tell you I feel like mine. This song will tell you I feel. I know you've been going away from me long. It's just so hard to hear this song without the low harmony. It's got such a hole in it. Props to the crowd for coming in on the yes. Mm. Fantastic. I love that. Like that is I if I was ever in a band and I had even a tenth of that level of crowd engagement, that would be the highlight of my life. Never has any crowd been responsive to anything that I have done in any way, shape, or form, even resembling that level of engagement. Yeah, it is. It's exciting, and you know, we mentioned we talked a lot about his gospel upbringing, but I think he learned a lot of stagecraft from those days and from what I'm sure can be kind of demanding intense audiences in small cramped spaces. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And like I I listening to this song particularly on this album, I pictured the band, I pictured Sam, I pictured the room, I pictured the crowd. I was there. He sent me to that room. Absolutely fantastic. A subpar version of this song still gets me there because number one it's still good good yeah Yeah. that's funny yeah yeah so i found the actual dimery book you know comment on this album and they had said that this song was the single greatest soul recording that has ever been captured on tape this specific song that's a big i don't know that that's a big statement it is i had a hard time rolling with that one because i just greatest i don't know i'd have to hear a little bit more i think in the realm of live soul recordings that that feels hyperbolic to me i do think the writing on the song is great and listen just here's one for the haters because people have come at us and said hey you got to feel the song don't worry about the chords and the changes and how many times they shift tempo or whatever this is the format of the song is a a a a a a (laughs) yeah and it's still amazing. It's amazing. Yes. This is apparently a, a repurposed uh, old gospel song called Bring It On Back To Me uh, that they repurposed for this. Ah, yeah. nice. Okay. Was that enough Enough of a change to get the copyright? <laughs> <laughs> well, the original copyright owner was God, yeah. so it was a little hard. <laughs> and you know what? He still didn't do as good of a version as Sam does. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Let's round on home with the last track on the album, the last track we're going to talk about tonight. It is Having a Party. Tell everybody we down here. You know, in the 60s, having a party was code for cocaine. <laughs> Same as now. <laughs> <laughs> so twisting and partying? Yeah, exactly. All right. yeah. Sign me up. There's Andrew WK. He's all over this. <laughs> this does seem like a really fun party. This is it's a great closer. Like, how did people after this just be like, okay, I'm going to go my merry way. Let's just leave now. I would have been, I would never have left the club. I've been clamoring for an encore. <laughs> It's a good point. Was there more to the show than this? It feels like a not that long of a... Was there an opener? I don't know. I have no idea. 
I would assume that if you were the band coming on after this. Oh, golly. Yeah, seriously. Oh, my God. Just go home. Yeah. Just stop. Just read poetry. Oh, God, yeah. This I had never heard uh, the, the studio version of this song, so I wasn't very familiar with it. But in my mind, giving too much credit to the DJ, I thought, was just a trope of modern pop music. You know, <laughs> but tonight the DJ's <laughs> yeah. got us falling in love again, and Madonna has her song about the DJ. And then it goes all the way back to 63, yeah. where you're like, oh, the DJ's going to make everything amazing. So, well done, Sam. Well, and then they had more of a point, because the DJ was more in control of what you heard and what you did not hear. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. yes. It's not true. a DJ Khaled thing, where he's like, I'm just, right. we the best. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that's the DJ he was referring to, Tom. Oh, of course. Of right. course. Yeah. He has a long and storied <laughs> career of adding nothing to music <laughs> but speaking of additive the crowd is the is a, a member of the band in this song this the crowd is amazing you can hear them all singing their hearts out this seems like it was so much fun i it's not often that i listen to a live recording and i'm like man i really want to be there i really want to be at this at this show this seems like a really fun show to be at but does that make it a must hear album before you die we're gonna vote on it people so let's get to it i'm gonna throw it around the room i want to hear first from rob does this make the list yeah, it was really just okay guys so i think we could probably skip it <laughs> no that listen i mean yeah we've been praising it the whole time i, I believe i checked this is the only sam cook recording on the list He's, it's partially because he's from the singles era of music, and I understand why that's challenging. So if the premise is that if you don't listen to this, you're never going to hear Sam Cooke's voice, then clearly you have to listen to it. But really, I think the reason it's there, by all means, go listen to some of the studio recordings as well, is because it adds and added for me so much additional context to this music. And, and like Tom said, put me in the room. So it's the first live record I think we've talked about on the podcast so far in low these 90-something episodes. And I say go listen to it. Yes. And for all of the uh, listeners to this podcast, we will put the studio versions of these songs on the playlist that accompanies this so you can get that context. You can hear the difference in energy and the difference in approach. Um, Adam, let's hear it. We got one yes. Let's hear it. Yeah, so this is a good album. I don't think that I would say this rises to the level of the greatest live recorded album of all time, which it has been touted as in a ton of different publications and music reviews. That said, to piggyback on Rob, you know, if this is the only Sam Cooke album you're going to hear, it's a yes, but I do wish Diamory had included some of the studio stuff as well, because those are the songs that I fell in love with. Uh, but this does this does provide nice uh, a nice change on on what those studio songs can be. So it's a yes. All right. So I I got to be honest. I did struggle with this a little bit because there is almost no definitive version of any song that is played presented on this album. And so I would be tempted to say, go listen to the original source albums that these come off of. But number one. It's short, it's tight, it's good from beginning to end, and it does really transport you. And for that reason, I'm going to give it a yes. It's a fun album. Like, it's just fun, and I can see how it could be important. The line from Sam Cooke to James Brown 
is so much more evident to me after listening to this album. I, I can see exactly oh, where all that totally. stuff came from. And, you know, that's a great call. maybe for just that reason, it, it, it clearly had a huge influence on, well, I guess, interestingly, like this particular album could not have had a huge influence because it was not released until 1985, which I don't think we touched on nearly <laughs> enough is that this was buried for yeah, 22 years. You're right. That actually is is really weird. I think it achieves its goals of what you would want out of a live album in that it enhances on the studio recordings of already good material, adds energy. You know, the, the performer saves something up for it. But it is weird. I'm going to just guess that James Brown found another way to hear live Sam Cooke. He right. probably saw <laughs> Sam Cooke live because, he, again, he yeah, was a road dog. In the, he, he in the crowd, sure. yeah. Interestingly, the... Sam Cooke discography contains two live albums, this album and then live at the Copa. So the Copa in New York was a predominantly white audience, and he did a much more laid back, palatable, kind of less raucous and less threatening version of a live album there. And that got released. um, I believe it was released posthumously, but it was released you know, uh, contemporarily to when it was recorded. And this album was buried until the mid-1980s, released at a time where, like, the stuff that was on the charts was, like, wham, everything she wants, and everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears. Like They must have just forgotten about it, because if you were... I sort of understand, although it is a crime against music, that it was buried in the first place. But I feel like by the time you get to the mid to late 70s, like... If you yeah. know you have this in the vault, you're going, yes, let's put this out. Or are they saying like a janitor stumbled on it or something? Like, I don't understand. I think that there was that sense that that was your parents' music in the 70s. Like, this wasn't the, you know, it wasn't even th- old enough to be throwback yet. It was still that qu- sort of like square older generation stuff, which is a dumb way to look at it because this is not square at all. So... Sorry, I know we're winding down here, but there, there's one more thing I forgot to mention that I that I read. You must have read about it too, Tom, was that he understood, right, that he wanted control of his publishing, and he understood that that's where the money was. But didn't he make, like, a bad deal with the same guy who ended up helping to break up the Beatles, one Alan Klein, to such a sign some contract with him where he ends up getting a lot of the publishing money in the Sam Cooke estate? Hasn't benefited from that? I didn't hear the whole story of if that was ever resolved uh, to be correct just in the world but something like that happened right? i it's don't the same know guy. If, i don't know if it got resolved either but yes he did get screwed but there he, one of the things that they do say is that during his time with rca he extracted like over half a million dollars in like 1960s money from rca but he did leave rca and he had his own sort of like publishing company rca basically was just a distribution deal towards the end of it but he was sort of trying to get a label up and off the ground and he made some questionable choices financially there i'm just mentioning that it involves this guy alan klein who was in the get back documentary all the beatles save paul wanted to sign with him and he was known to be kind of a strong arm artist and a little bit shady and that was a big part i think of what broke him up ultimately yeah. Well, that and heroin and Yoko Ono, right? <laughs> That's a variety of factors. <laughs> variety of factors, yes. Right. Uh, well, so there you have it, dear listeners. Appreciate you sticking around with us. That is a three for three. Yes, you should listen to 
Sam Cooks, live at the Harlem Square Club. A fantastic live album. First live album we've done. I don't think there's many other live albums on the list, so we probably won't get to another one for a long time. I think you could already listen to the record like four times listening to us. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> you need the, the context, all right, to, to be able to figure it out. Underneath. You need to know whether or not we give it our stamp, which we did. Now, we have a few things left to cover before we get to the end of this episode. The first thing that we are going to do is we're going to throw it on over to Rob, and he is going to reach his arm into that mailbag and pull us out a missive from our, uh, I'm sure, adoring fans, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so thank you so much for sending over these emails. We take every one of them into our heart. Here's a couple recent ones. First, Henry from North Carolina writes, Great job on the podcast. You guys continue to knock it out of the park with your level-headed analysis, research, and humor. I've level-headed. been able to, yeah. I, I paid my dad for this one. So I've been able reading. to turn a number of folks on to the podcast in my community. Couple of comments about the show. Number one, the horn break in Feel by Big Star is in fact an homage to Lady Madonna. Same riff, and I believe the same key. And now we will drop those in for the listeners. Wow. Deep. That's intense. Well done. And lastly, just to get a little dig in on Adam, Henry points out, love the Velvet Underground record. I think everybody, including myself, who heard this record, went out and started a band. Adam's wrong. No, he didn't write that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I somehow uh, didn't get any splashback on that one. (laughs) You escaped that. It must be my level-headedness on that that episode. (laughs) Thank you you for writing. All right, we have one more short one. This is, I believe, I hope I'm going to say your name right, Aiden from Texas. He writes, hey, gang, I found y'all with the Donald Fagan's Nightfly episode and was hooked ever since. With that episode, you helped me realize how stupid the Oh Miami in Walk Between the Raindrops was. Yes. And made me contemplate my taste in music. Let's drop that in real quick here. so bad it's so cool another key highlight i loved was in the new york dolls episode adam's full uninterrupted minute-long rant about how lonely planet boys sucks i <laughs> <laughs> loved it don't drop that here don't Love drop that here Rob. what y'all what other songs y'all are gonna cover <laughs> keep up the good work oh fantastic awesome. Excellent emails. Thank you so much. They're getting better and better every week. Keep them coming. That complaints, correct us, add more information. We love all of it. We we came here to learn and to be corrected and to be yelled at, frankly. So send them on over to 1001 Album Complaints at Gmail. We're guaranteed. Well, at least I'm guaranteed to read it. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Rob. Last thing that we have on our plate before we wrap this on up, before we bring it on home to you, 
It is going to be picking the album for next week. Get our homework assignment. Hopefully you'll be listening along with us. I have the Albinator here. I had to mop the sweat off of it. It's been working hard in the corner, just getting down. And now it is ready for another raucous, really just kicking album. Let's hear it. Give it to me. Without any further ado, we will be listening to... Come Away With Me by Nora Jones. <laughs> okay. That's pretty raucous, right? I'm just excited I've, I've actually heard of this. I'm on the hook for research this week. So I, an album I've actually heard of and an artist I've heard of. I feel like the last couple I've done have just been, for me, out of left field. So I mean, listen, personally, I have this like driving at night in the fog mix that I put on that has like filters, hey man, nice shot. It's got, um, you know, bulls on parade and it's got uh, whatever the big hit for the Nora Jones album is on it. They all just <laughs> blend together. Don't know why I didn't uh, Yeah, come. I don't actually. Oh, yeah. Okay. God damn. This is going to be a smooth week. My wife's going to be very happy about this week. I can listen to it with the rest of the family. Oh, right? yeah, man. <laughs> right? You can you can put this on during dinner. Hell so yeah. Should, I think you'll be all right. Well, uh, yeah, actually kind of excited about that. So everybody has their homework assignment for next week. We'll be, we will be listening to Come Away With Me by Nora Jones. I hope you're as excited as I am to hear all of the very uh, in-depth and in no way off-the-cuff takes that we're going to have on this album thank you for sticking with us until the bittersweet end of this one for 1001 album complaints i have been tom i'm adam and i'm rob Boo-hoo, hoo, 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 hoo.